Man, that song was not supposed to be sung. Um, praise the Lord. <clears throat> Thank you, team. Uh, so it threw me off a little bit, but we'll, we'll be okay. Um, I'll sniffle for the next 30 minutes, and, and, and it'll be okay. Um, good morning. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually don't introduce myself. I just start playing and then start singing. You sing along, and, and we have a, a good old happy time. And, but it seems appropriate to tell you who I am, just in case you snuck in. You, don't, you have never seen my face before. I get to serve on a team of pastors that I call some of my dearest friends. Um, just a, a group of faithful giants that shepherd me well while we shepherd you together. And so I'm grateful, grateful to be here this morning. Please grab your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat. There's one around you. Look over somebody's shoulder, uh, but let your eyes find God's Word this morning. We'll be anchored in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pick up where Pastor Adam left off last week. While you're turning uh, near the end of this summer, most countries will send some of their premier athletes to Paris for the 2024 Summer Olympics. Just over 10,000 athletes, going to take 18 days, compete in 32 different sports. Sports that include things like handball, break dancing, that's, that's in it now, rhythmic gymnastics. Some of the staples will be there, the ones that you expect, figure skating, wrestling, track and field. That's no shocker. You're, you're looking at me. You're saying, this guy knows nothing about breakdancing, rhythmic gymnastics, and I'm not very good on ice skates, to be honest. But what I can do and what I will do is I'll sit back and I'll cheer on these top athletes. These top athletes will showcase their talent, their hard work, and their patriotism. The U.S. men's relay team, it's a track and field team, if you're not familiar. They have statistically been one of the most decorated teams in track and field, dating all the way back to the 1896 Olympics. A long time. One of the races that the men's relay teams runs is the 4x100. And if you're not a track and field enthusiast, the 4x100 is simply one lap around the track. That's 400 meters, but four guys are going to run it. Each are going to run. One guy's going to run 100 meters, and then they're going to do this simple thing. They're going to pass a baton and make an exchange to the next runner. And when I pass the baton, it signifies my, my part of the race is done, and now it's your turn. Out of 26 Olympic Games, the 4x100 team has set a world record 17 times. They've won a gold 15 times. You hear these stats and you think dominance, you think excellence, you think the best. And you put on your red, white, and blue, and you watch and you cheer them on, and even the chants of USA, you, they begin. You can't help it. They're dominant. They're the best. We are awesome. But hold on. Before you wander too far down that path, did you know that the U.S. men's relay teams are also highly known for something other than setting records, other than winning goals? They're known for 
getting disqualified. I don't, I'm not making it up. It's just a fact. You can look it up. There are records in major events, not just Olympics, in 1912, 1960, 1988, 1995, 1997. Turnover, 2004, 2005, 08, 09, 11, 13, 15, 16, and in 2020. All reflect being disqualified. No records. No awards. Why? That's an automatic question that you would ask, because they have historically struggled with that seemingly simple task of handing a piece of metal that's about that big from one person to the next. Now I oversimplify it, but that's what has tripped them up. That simple exchange from one runner to another has tripped them up for years. If you've been paying attention over the last eight weeks, you probably have noticed something in the way Matthew is writing. He said to be, Pastor Matt has, has noted it, the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Matthew continually reminds the reader by quoting the prophets of old that this story is their story, prophet after prophet. He says, it is written here, the prophet has said, or Jeremiah said this, or Isaiah said this. An interesting exercise I did is I just went through the first four chapters, and every time I saw a, a reference, a note back to the, to the Scriptures, to the Old Testament, I just highlighted it. There's a lot of highlighted parts in those four, first four chapters. But he's telling us, he's showing us that it's, a, it's the same story, that what he is saying is not a standalone message but one that's been passed on since the beginning of time. The same message of the redemption of his people, and if there's going to be a redemption of people, then there must be a redeemer. This redeemer, this Messiah, who all the Jewish people would have recited verses or stories about, is now here. See, the relay team of the prophets never had a bad exchange. They passed the baton of the message generation after generation. The handoff has been clean all the way to John the Baptist. It's the prophet Isaiah who said, he is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And now here in our text, the middle section of chapter 4, verse 12, zooms in on this baton exchange between John, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Turn your eyes to verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now let's pause our reading. We're going to go further, but let's just pause for a moment. John the Baptist, this one that was told for generations past, has been arrested. It's a simple one-liner here in Matthew 4. We don't get the descriptors. We don't get the, the full story, more meat to that skeleton until chapter 14. John's ministry is not done. He's in prison, but the Father will continue to use him. But what he's been born to do, what he's been, it's been prophesied about him has been fulfilled. He has prepared the way for Jesus. He has 
faithfully pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John did most of his ministry in the Judean wilderness. If you look back a page, it's probably chapter 4 is on the right, chapter 3 is on the left. They're not long chapters. And you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, that, that he was in the Judean wilderness. It was a mountainous, isolated, hard-to-get-to area. And what we see in our text today in verses 12 through 16, so far, as a result of the arrest of John, Jesus chooses to move into an area within Galilee called Capernaum. This area of Galilee was not a large area, but it was fertile. It was growing, had a considerable population. Some of the smallest villages, some of the smallest areas are known to have had about 15,000 people. If you come from a big town like me, that's like four times the size of Burgaw. It was, it was big. It was growing. Galilee was a happening place. It was, there was building going on. There was trade was good. Ideas flowed freely. Even the non-believing Jewish historian Josephus said that all of Galilee was a cultivated area. The difference between these two areas, Judea and Galilee, a Scottish theologian by the name of Barclay gives us a, a glimpse. He says that Judea is on the way to nowhere where Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Filled with people that were not all Israelites. So Jesus is going to this place that's, that's not all Jewish people. He's going there these Jewish people were known to, or these non-Jewish people were living in this area, and they were known to be oppressed and, and forced to, to um, practice Judaism, which resulted in a weak commitment, which resulted in animosity, which resulted in, in each other looking down on the other. So what we see here already, we're only a couple verses in is that Jesus didn't start his work in the main city of Jerusalem. Now that's where, if we're honest, you and I would probably go. People that are going to, just even, even if we can assume, they're probably going to be open to hear, hear what I'm saying. They're probably going to be on my side, on my team. But no, he goes to Galilee. He goes to this area where there's already animosity. People are already, hey, you're forcing me to, to learn what your heritage and what you believe. You and I would likely pick a place where, in today's thinking, would give us the most clicks, the most views, the most subscribers. The analytics would tell us to go here versus here because this would be a, a better platform for you to begin your public ministry. And Jesus didn't do that. This, this negative press and the reputation of being around those type of people, that would not be good for your message, Jesus. You should probably choose to go to a different location. You can go there later, but to really get the steam rolling, to really get the, the movement going, to get your face out there, to make a name for you, go to Jerusalem, but he didn't. It's a reminder that God does not, not act in accordance with the expectations of the people, no matter how religious they are. He does his great work even among the lowly and the despised. 
from the onset of his public ministry in full accordance with the will of the Father through the words of the prophet. Jesus is saying by going to Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, they say it is, what, what I am bringing, who I am, the work I have to do is for both the Jew and the Gentile. I've come for both. A message to us all is Christ's perfect life and payment for sins is for all the best and the lowly. When you hear that, it should push you into our current situation. This is where God planted us in this neighborhood here at Prince's Place Drive. And so we should have, once we, we planted our roots here, we should have begun to fight against those prejudice and those preconceived notions that we all have towards other people. Other people that don't look like us or sound like us or live like us. But the message rings out that the good news of Christ is good news for all. See, the Messiah's in motion here. He has chosen his location to begin his walk to the cross. See, if there is going to be a redemption, there must be a redeemer. And since the cost of redemption is a perfect sacrifice, then the perfect redeemer must be headed to sacrifice his life. And he has chosen, that begins here in Galilee. He's fully aware of what's in the prophet Isaiah chapter 9. It's quoted here in Matthew 4, that these are people who are in darkness. Look at verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This people that Jesus has come to are a people dwelling in darkness. It's not a fleeting instance or a moment, but rather a lifestyle in darkness, covering the mind and the spirit, and as a result, it forms their actions. These people lived in the looming shadow of death, near and very under its threat. Two pastors wrote a commentary, Lewis and Booth, they say, they are destitute of any spark of spiritual life, and the gloom of present sinfulness and eternal misery hangs over them. Isaiah 9, I said, is quoted here. If you flip back to Isaiah 9 and then go back one more chapter to Isaiah 8, you'll see where there's a prophecy of a coming judgment. Isaiah speaks of a time of darkness and despair, a time when people will look for guidance and answers but will only encounter distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. And somewhere at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, there's an urging to have faith in God. In Isaiah 9, with a people who walk in darkness under burden and oppression, verse 6 comes, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We live in a, in a location where storms are not uncommon for us. It's not uncommon for us to get a, a heavy, nasty summer thunderstorm. It's not uncommon, which is news to me. This seems like the last eight years I've, I've seen more tornado watches. You get them, and they pop up, and then they disappear. And, of course, in the fall, the big threat of hurricanes. 
You've likely experienced watching a storm come in. And you see the darkness kind of overtake all of your world. Everywhere that you can see becomes dark. And that darkness hovers over all that you can see. And when the darkness is so present, it begins to control your, your thoughts and even down to your actions. It does. You begin to look at your, your phone a lot more. Well, how bad is it going to be? Well, when is it actually supposed to get here? I know they say it's supposed to get here at 2 o'clock tomorrow, but what do they really know? It could get here at 12, so we better be prepared. Well, they're saying it's going to be pretty bad. The winds are going to be pretty high, so if the winds are going to be pretty high, it's probably going to mean it's going to break some trees or knock some trees down. If it breaks some trees, knocks some trees down, it's probably going to hit a power line. If it hits a power line, then my power is probably going to go out. So that means, ah, I got to run to the store. I got to get some milk. I got to get some bread. I got to get all these other things that I need. I mean, I need dryer sheets. I, I need more dryer. I don't know why, but they're there. I need to get them. The storm's coming. We check the generator. We check to make sure we have enough fuel because if the power goes out, I don't want to go without my necessities. How in the world am I going to charge my cell phone if the power goes out? So tightly are we affected and influenced that, that if the storm lasts over a night, you go to bed very anxious. You begin to pray differently, don't you? All those, all those nighttime conversations that you have, like, honey, what are we going to watch tonight? That seems to disappear. God, protect us. Keep the roof on my house. Keep my family safe. In our case, protect my animals. Don't, 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 don't. Don't let a tree take them out. I love them things. I said my family first, all right? <clears throat> Just fair, all right? Well, we go to bed, and it has affected our thoughts. It's affected our actions. We've done everything. We've tied down every bit of patio furniture we can tie down. But we go to bed with some uneasiness, and it's, and it's just engulfed our, our thoughts and our actions. And this darkness is looming over us, and that storm is looming, and we go to bed, and we just hope for the glimmer of light at dawn. That's all we hope for, because that'll give me some kind of hope. That'll give me some kind of assurance that this storm, this darkness is not forever, and it will not overtake me. Matthew says, on them, the people dwelt in darkness, but a light has dawned. Not because of something these Galileans had done. Did they worry enough? Did they change the way they acted to each other? No. They couldn't get rid of the darkness by creating light. That's not something they could do. We see where it's out of the tender mercy of God that light has come. Luke chapter 1 tells us of a father's pronouncement concerning his son. He's been quiet during the whole pregnancy. And at last, he's speaking over his new son, and this new son is John, John the Baptist. And when he speaks, he speaks of his purpose and God's plan for his life. And in verse 78, Zechariah gives the why. Why would God have used John the Baptist? Not because he was good, it's just a little baby. Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The tender mercy of our God now shines from on high into a people dwelling 
in darkness. Light has come in the Messiah, in this Jesus. Consistently throughout the scriptures, Jesus is noted as being the light. He's the light of men. Isaiah 42, verse 6, speaking of Jesus, he's the light to the nations. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke. This is Jesus speaking about himself. Hey, other people have said Jesus is the light. The light is coming. Now, Jesus is stepping forward in John 8 and saying, I am the light of the world. John 12 is why you have it down at the end of verse 35 and 36, why you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 46, a few verses down, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The light has come. The new light has dawned. There's a glimmer of hope here in these verses that the darkness does not have to overcome. 1 John 2, 8, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. See, ever since Genesis 3, when man chose to disobey God, we have inherited a darkness of sin. We are a people living under the threat of this darkness. We dwell in darkness, it looms over us, and it leads to death, but God has made a way. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the, nor- of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No longer did the Galileans have to dwell in darkness. On them the light has dawned. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, what it takes to be in right standing with God, is now evident before them. In the face of Jesus Christ. This was the message to those shadowed Galileans. And it's the message to us. Our darkness is overcome by the light of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We saw where the king was prophesied. And the king is born. In Matthew chapter 3. We saw where the king is baptized. Pastor Adam unpacked last week at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, we saw where the king was tempted. And now in the middle section of chapter 4, pay attention, we get the first words of Jesus' public ministry here in verse 17. It says that from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is born The king is baptized, the king is tempted, and the king speaks. For generation after generation, baton exchange after baton exchange, the message has stayed the same, promising that redemption is coming, there's going to be a redeemer. And the redeemer steps forward and he says, I am the light of the world. You that are in darkness, listen. But notice Jesus did not come on the scene and try to fix all the needs of the people. We'll find out. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't blind to the real needs, the physical needs of the people. We're going to see next week at the end of chapter 4 that God met those, God healed people, God helped people that were in distress. There were plenty of needs. But what he did is he stepped forward 
And he reminded us that the message has stayed the same. It's the same message if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where John was speaking. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's word for word. The king speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks a call to salvation. Jeff Morgan, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says this. He came with no theology. He came with no philosophy to discuss. He came with no new cult to introduce He did not come to ask men to consider a position which they could accept or reject as they pleased. He came with a thundering voice of a great inspiration. Repent. Jesus picked an out-of-the-way place with people that weren't all on his side. He goes to Galilee, the people that were in darkness, and he steps forward as the light and life of men. And his first word is repent. This message of repentance is vital. It's fundamental to Christ's message. There are two words in the New Testament for repentance. One is, um, I'm sorry for having done wrong. The other is the one that's found here. It's a changing of one's mind. It's a changing of one's direction. But consistent to the overall biblical account of repentance, it's filled with constant calls to repent. Yes, change your direction, change your mind, but change that unto God. They're connected. We're not repenting when we we lay out chicken for dinner tonight to let it thaw, and then it's time to prepare for dinner. We say, nah, I'd really like to have steak. There's no repentance. You you did change your mind. There's no changing your mind unto God. Change your mind. Repentance recorded in the whole of God's word has a, has a weighty intention, a weighty response, and a weighty posture when dealing with repentance. The intention is to be distinct in our repenting posture, to be distinct in our response. See, to be distinct means that your repentance and changing of life and mind is readily distinguishable from all others. It's easily perceived by the senses. It's clearly defined. It's unquestionable. Back in Exodus 33, verse 16, Moses and God have this exchange. And, and for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? If they repent, they turn from their wickedness. If they change their direction and change their way of thinking, change it unto God, their lives will look different. Dr. Dr. Piper says, any thought any attitude, any word, any facial expression, any gesture, any action that does not flow from a treasuring of Jesus is sin. Any facial expression. Seems kind of, kind of heavy, Doc. Sin. It's a reflection of what he says later. Sin is a condition of the heart that is bent away from God in preference for other things. And sin is any expression of that preference in our mind or attitude or behavior. He tells us that it will be with us and it should sadden us. It should even break your heart. 
But hold on to this truth. He says, sin will be with us until that inner condition is wholly obliterated in the presence of Christ. Our sin needs to be put to death daily, John Owen says, through confession. Confessing to God when our thoughts, our attitudes, even facial expressions don't clearly showcase my turning to God. So we ask ourselves, are we choosing to live as if the darkness, that shadow of death is still over us? Let us not forget that when we repent, we turn to the one in control. Look what he says here in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of heaven language, it it means the rule and the ruler of all of heaven is here. So he steps forward. He says, repent, because I'm here. The rule and ruler of heaven is standing right now. Turn to me. You don't have to live in that looming shadow of darkness, that darkness that leads to death. I am the light of the world. Come to me. So it seems upside down. You see all the needs around uh, with all these people, Jesus. You step into this town. You step into this area. And you see all these needs. Why wouldn't you help these hurting people? He says, I am helping these hurting people. That is not ultimately their biggest need. Their biggest need is the condition of their heart and the darkness of sin that is within their soul. And I am here to be the light that will cast that darkness out forever, redeeming a people back to the Father. This expression is wrapped up in the life of Jesus. No other Jewish writings have this language until now. Again, stitching together what was promised in the Old Testament in the life of Jesus as the one sent to redeem a people, weaving together repentance and turning to God, to the rule and the ruler of heaven who is there. We see God actively at work. He is ruling. He has always been a God of action. Read your Bible. Get a different color highlighter than you ever use. And every time you see, start with page one and read through. Every time you see God initiate, God pursue, God act, highlight it. And then when you're done, when you get to the last page and you close your Bible, pray and thank God for what you just highlighted and then open it back up and just bask in in what God has done for you. You'll be amazed. Over and over and over. He's not watching over... He's not just watching over people in their lives. He's not just responding. There's something happening, and it's changing lives. He's pushing back the darkness in our lives by his perfect life and light. The plan of God and the redemption of his people is not in response to the darkness of sin that is present, but rather it has been his plan from eternity past to step forward and redeem his people. Matthew 4.17 tells us that the king speaks He's spoken a call to salvation through repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then our last section here, verses 18 through 22, a while later, we see where the king speaks again. This time he speaks a call to service. It's secondary to his first statement, but it's consistently connected together throughout the scripture. Salvation and service. But you have to get the order right. Look at the order that he gave. It's salvation unto service, not service that leads and gets you salvation. If you find, please listen, 
if you find anyone or anything that promotes service to attain salvation, pray for them with all earnestness because they're going to hell. God's word is very clear. You do not twist the language of Scripture. You do not, not twist the message that God so faithfully has preserved. Run from it. It is salvation that leads to service. Verse 18, look there. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is a significant moment in these men's lives. In Judaism, the disciple would choose the rabbi. The disciple would notice a rabbi or a teacher, and they would say, I really want to learn from this guy. And they would approach the rabbi and in all humility, they would go and they would ask, hey, Rabbi, can I follow you? Can I, can I learn from you? Can I, can I submit to you and, and you teach me? I want, I want to glean from you your wisdom. But here in verse 19, Jesus chooses his disciples. It's an echoing of the common pattern in Christianity throughout the Old and New Testament. God has been choosing his followers and his children. But to be picked by a rabbi would be humbling. A request that for these men would well up within them a pride and honor to be chosen to follow Jesus. I'll try to keep it short. Um, if you've talked to me in the last several months, then you know I am all about my sheep. Um, I have, okay, maybe I'm talking about it too much. Um, about October time, I bought sheep. I didn't buy sheep to, to eat. I bought sheep because in God's word, he says that I'm a sheep. And I want to know what that means. So I bought sheep. And I love my sheep dearly. When they get a little uh, thorn or stick in their little hoof, and they're limping, and I have, to, I have to grab them and doctor them up. And I see the relief in their little eyes when I pull that. You think I'm crazy. You can see it when I see the stick come out through the tears in my eyes. It's like my sheep is healthy and, and good. I sit around. I watch them. I talk to them every day. Every day. I haven't yet today, but my afternoon will consist of a nap and talking to my sheep. They don't talk back yet, but so don't be worried. Early on, I made a bunch of mistakes. I, I treated them as any other livestock that we've ever had, but you can't raise, you can't treat sheep the same way, and let's just say it didn't work out too well. One day early on, I had to move them from one pasture to another, and so um, this pasture was done, You've eaten everything good out of it, you need to go to that pasture. That pasture is good. And so I, I, I rallied up the family, 
I said, all right, everybody, this is what we're doing. And I had a big plan. And so we treated them like all other livestock, and we got behind them, and we waved our arms, and we verbally encouraged our sheep to walk through the gate to new, clean, green pasture. That did not go as planned. They were more concerned with standing there in that old pasture and looking at us like, who are these crazy people that are waving their arms at us? It, it was a fight, it was hard, it was disruptive, and it took forever. I learned a valuable lesson that day. What I was doing wasn't right. I learned over the next days and months that if the sheep know the shepherd, they will easily follow him. Fast forward to last week. A, a crowning achievement in my shepherding in Burgaw. It was time to move the sheep again, and I had to move them from this field to that field. They had to go through the same gate as before. This time, I walked into the middle of the field and looked at them and explained what we're going to do, and then I just turned and walked towards the gate, and through tears in my eyes, I look over my shoulder. And they're forming a line, and they're following me. And they're walking to the new pasture. And so when I was done weeping and having revival there in the field, I thank my God that in a tender shepherd's voice, he's consistently looked out on people and said, follow me. See, Satan through the culture is trying to herd us toward an agenda and toward his desires that will ultimately lead to death. Let us be sheep that only move when and where the voice of the trusted shepherd calls. Jesus stood on the bank. These men were doing their job, things that they were good at, things that provided for their family. And he could have come to these men while they were working and commanded them to get out of the boat and come with him. He could have stood on the bank of the river and waved his arms and verbally encouraged these, these men to get out of the boat and to follow him. He could have motivated them with muscle or manipulation, but that's not what he did. He simply said, follow me. The king spoke a call to service. It reminds me that when God chooses and calls, it doesn't take convincing. Twice here, the independent accounts, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they responded the same. It says they immediately followed him. They left their livelihood. They left their families. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. It wasn't a common phrase, but it said enough. And with their, their background and what they did as a profession, it said enough where they could understand a little bit of what he was saying. They couldn't have known the full magnitude of what their lives would turn into. Just like when you answer the call to follow Jesus, you don't know where he's going to take you or, or what he's possibly going to put you in. It wasn't easy earning a livelihood by fishing. If you weren't working, you weren't eating or making money, if you weren't mending your nets or tending to your boat, then likely your family would go without. 
It was a sacrifice. It was a cost to live this way of life. And now Jesus tells them clearly the same would be true of following him. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be work. There's a cost. There's going to be sacrifice. All of that wrapped up into, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew, James and John are learning or would learn what Laertes, a third century historian and philosopher, would later say. It's no longer a question of taking fish from the lake, but of drawing men up out of the abyss of sin and death, catching them in the great net of God. Jesus used words they knew to give a glimpse of their new calling. A calling of this great magnitude would certainly have a vast cost. Our time is up. My time is done. And so I'll conclude with this. There was a uh, Baptist missionary who has been given credit for writing a hymn. American hymn editor kind of polished it up in the 50s and gave us this hymn in its modern form. But the message, the, the context of the words come from a man in India, a believer in India who was being martyred for his faith. While he was walking with his executioners to the place that he would be killed, it said that he was quoting John 12 and saying the words that are found in this song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, so I will follow. I often wonder if, if Peter said, I'm going, and Andrew said, I'm not. Though none go with me, so I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And he gets closer and closer to the point of his death, and closer and closer to seeing the glory in the face of Jesus. He says, the world behind me, the cross before me. I don't need any of this stuff. The darkness that loomed over me at one point has now been lifted because the light and life of men stepped in and said, I am here, follow me, come to me. No turning back, no turning back. Jesus, the promised redeemer, the Messiah, told of throughout the prophets, preached the same message of repentance and turning to God that has pre been preached since the fall. He gave the Galileans, and he gives us the same invitation. Come out of darkness. The light and life of the world is here in the face of Christ. Now, every time a man stands in this pulpit, he's looking at two people, two different types of people. One is probably somebody in this room that is in darkness. You are covered with the darkness of your sin. You feel it. You know it. And I would exhort you to repent and believe in the Redeemer. Decide today to follow Jesus. The other is that person you have, you have repented. You're following Jesus. And what he says here in Matthew 4 speaks to us speaks to you as well. Take up the call to service. Don't be busy about doing good things. Be busy about being fishers of men.
I'll leave you with this. He's worthy of far more than church attendance and casual association. He is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. Follow him and serve him by heralding the same message. May we pray.